Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial attorneys. My name is Amy Gunn, and I will be your host for today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode. Today, I have the great privilege of spending time with criminal defense and human rights attorney Nancy Hollander. Nancy is widely recognized as one of the finest criminal defense and human rights attorneys in the United States and beyond. She has a BA from the University of Michigan and a JD from the University of New Mexico. She joined her current firm, Friedman, Boyd, Hollander, and Goldberg in Albuquerque in 1980 and made partner in 1983. She's been a member of the American College of Trial Lawyers since 2004. She is the recipient of numerous additional awards and honors, including being on the cover of Best Lawyers, Women in Law in 2001. Perhaps currently best known for her pro bono representation of Mohamedou Oud Salahi, a Guantanamo Bay detainee for whom she secured release in 2016 and about whom the 2021 film The Mauritanian starring Jodie Foster as Nancy is based. Hello, Nancy. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you, Amy. Nancy, it's such a pleasure to spend some time with you today. I wonder if you could tell us why law school? Can you give us a little bit of your journey growing up and getting to law school? Well, it's a strange journey because I was never planning to go to law school. I was a pre-med student. I went to the University of Michigan as a chemistry major, but there was this war in Vietnam and I got very active against the war, didn't take the courses switched to sociology. Later, I decided to take comparative anatomy and chemistry because I was interested in them. But I did various things along the way after college at the University of Michigan. I was an organizer in Chicago. I wrote a book about Chicago with my husband at the time, Todd Gitlin, and learned to be a photographer, kind of a street photographer. Various other things happened in my life. I had a child, ended up moving to New Mexico, and went to work for the American Civil Liberties Union as a director in New Mexico. We had a very small office. And basically, it's a long story, but the short version is that someone told me that I should go to law school. And I met with a friend one morning while our kids were playing, and I said, what do you think? I've been thinking about really trying to go to medical school, although I now have a six-year-old child, and I'm a single mom and 30 years old. And she said, well, you should be a lawyer. That's the medicine that you do. And I went to my office and I said to my secretary, would you call a law school and find out how you get in? (laughs) And she said, today's the last day to sign up for the LSAT. Wow. And she went to the law school, got the forms. I filled them out, applied to the University of New Mexico. I didn't have any money to go anywhere else. But I knew a lot of lawyers from my work with the ACLU and a lot of judges. And I got in and went to law school. And all I ever wanted to do was criminal defense. I was not interested in anything else. Went to work for the state public defender for 14 months. I tried 22 felony jury trials in that time and then went to the firm that I'm still with. At that time, it was Freeman Boyd Daniels. Now it's Freeman Boyd Hollander Goldberg. And 
except for a few cases. All I've ever done is criminal defense and civil rights. That is quite a journey. I had read that while it must have been in college, you were protesting with the Students for a Democratic Society. True. Was that part of your advocacy? I know it sounds like you really had medicine on your mind for a while, but that really feels to me like you've always had a heart of an advocate. That's true. And as I often say to people, I fought the government my whole adult life, and now I get paid for it sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) And that's true. I've been an advocate and organizer all my adult life. Where does that come from? I think it comes from my parents. We lived in Dallas, Texas, and my parents always had to work to make sure that we understood that we were not racist, that it was wrong. I once went with our housekeeper to her house. My mother worked and I went to her house because my mother was going to be late. And I got on the bus. I was about seven or eight years old. I got on the bus and it said colored with an arrow and white with an arrow. And Claudia sat in the back and I sat in the front, but I didn't like it because I was scared of being alone. I kept looking back at her. And when my mother came to pick me up, She said, did you have fun? Because Claudia had two daughters my age. And I said, yes, but I don't ever want to go on the bus again. And I told her what happened. And she said, it's okay. You can sit in the back with Claudia. But those things happened in my youth. And when I was about 12, I had read all the books that kids read, the Nancy Drew books, the dog books, the horse books. And I had to have a book for library class. And my mother, who wasn't entirely thoughtful, first handed me for whom the bell tolls. And my (laughs) brother said, you can't give her that to read. And she said, oh, okay." And then she gave me Ibsen's A Doll's House. And she said, here, read this. It'll make you a feminist. (laughs) And the library teacher told me I was too young to read it and to never bring it back to school. Oh, my goodness. And I told my mother and she said, you know, don't worry about it. Just read it at home. And it sounds like you did that just that. Yes, I did do just that. So, <laughs> you know, that's how I was raised. They were very quiet about their politics because we were in Dallas. My mother was a professional woman. My father traveled and sold medical supplies. He was an engineer by training and they were just very quiet about it. But I learned enough. You indicated that you've moved to New Mexico. What drew you to New Mexico? Well, my parents had moved to New Mexico. My two-year-old son and I had to leave in the middle of the night to avoid a drunken husband, a man I loved very much and who was a good person but had a bad addiction. And we left. That's how I got there. But... I went to New Mexico. My parents had a dinner party to introduce me to people. And one of the people they introduced me to was the president of the local New Mexico Civil Liberties Union. And he said, we're looking for a new director. And I applied, along with nine other people, got the job and started working. It was really the New Mexico Civil Liberties Union. It was part of the ACLU. You mentioned that you spent 14 months in the state public defender's office and tried 22 felony trials during that time? 
Yeah, we had a DA at that time who decided there would be no plea bargains. Wow. That didn't last more than a couple of years, but you either had to plead straight up to the indictment or try the case. And so we tried them all. I got there right out of law school and was handed a felony robbery case. It was my first jury trial. Now, we had a clinic at that time at New Mexico, and the students handled most of the misdemeanors in the city of Albuquerque, along with one law professor. So I had already had a few jury trials for prostitution, DWI, things like that. I had taken a course in trial advocacy, but then I was thrown into a robbery case with one lawyer who had a year's more experience than I did. At that time, did you have mentors? Did you have the luxury of watching any felony trials or was it just, here's your file, go get it done? Well, I had watched a couple very famous lawyers in New Mexico but they were big trials and I had watched them. I had watched a trial that my later law partners did. I remember those two. I remember a third one, a man named Charlie Driscoll, who was a mentor and later became a priest, very interesting man. But I had watched those. And I think the two people who were my mentors in law were Charlie Driscoll and Charlie Daniels, who later became Chief Justice of the New Mexico Supreme Court, but was one of my law partners for many years. Those were my real mentors. And I asked lots and lots of questions. I had a boyfriend who at the time was in private practice, a couple years older than I, and I took my files to him. We talked about them. I asked people for motions. I really worked. I really worked those cases. And after 14 months, what compelled you to make the change to the private sector? I had always wanted to work with Charlie Daniels and his partners. That had been my goal. And when I first got out of law school, they said, we don't have the money to hire you. Do something that you can leave. Why don't you go clerk for a judge? And I remember this. And I said, I don't want to be in law school anymore. I want to be a lawyer. You know, so I went to the public defender. And then at one point, I was scheduled for three trials at the same time. And I had just finished a trial. I mean, I just had them back to back. And I went to see Charlie and I said, I don't know what to do. You know, I can't take my son to the dentist. I can't continue like this. And he said, if you get called for a trial on Monday, go in and say, with all due respect, he said, that's how you start when there's not really any respect. With all due respect, (laughs) Your Honor, I can't do a trial this week. And if you go to jail, call me, I'll get you out. And I didn't have any trials scheduled. But on Wednesday of that week, it was in December, late December, he called me and said, can you come talk to us? And they really didn't have any money to hire me, but they were afraid that I was going to go somewhere else. And I shared an office with another lawyer. I had a table for a desk. And then about six months later, we moved and things kind of straightened out. I took a few cases with me that I didn't think other people would finish properly and did them there. You mentioned that you've fought the government your whole career actually your whole life, it sounds like. 
What kind of cases did you have in private practice like that? Do you mean you're just constantly fighting the prosecutors or the government with respect to the criminal charges? Or did you have human rights issues at that time as well? Well, every criminal case is a fight against the government. It's the only time that your own government is going to war against you, really, in a small sense. And so that's what I mean by fighting the government. It's every criminal case. The prosecutors are the government, whether they're state or federal or Indian, because I've had a couple cases on the reservations, too. And the civil cases, I've done all of them with my partner, John Boyd, who's a First Amendment lawyer. I could never have done those alone because I really didn't know all the civil rules that well. I didn't know how to frame interrogatories. But the biggest one I had was the UDV case, which was a case involving the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. That one I argued in the U.S. Supreme Court and won. Tell me about that one. The UDV, which has a very long Portuguese name, but we refer to it as the UDV. It's a small sect started in Brazil that drinks a tea. The tea is made from plants of one tree and the bark of another that are found in the Amazon. And one of them contains a naturally occurring dimethyltryptamine, known as DMT. DMT is a Schedule One drug, meaning it has no use. It's one of the four called hallucinogenics or psychoactive substances, LSD, DMT, psilocybe, and mescaline. So a quantity came in through customs because it's made in a ceremony, a three-day ceremony. And this liquid came in and the government thought, oh my God, we've got this big dealing going on and we're going to find this big drug lab. So they followed it to the home of Jeffrey Bronfman in New Mexico, a beautiful home in Santa Fe. Jeffrey opens the door and says, hi, I'm Jeffrey Bronfman. You have my tea. And they realized he was not a drug dealer. But then they didn't know what to do. And this case started that way. We put on a big show for the prosecutors over two days, hired a bunch of experts. They agreed that it was a religion, which was a big step. But beyond that, they said, they'll just have to use something else. And I said, well, you can't use something else. That's their sacrament. Are you going to tell the Catholic Church they can't have wheat wafers? And so we filed a lawsuit. And we won in district court. And we won in the court in the Tenth Circuit, and we won on bank. And the government kept appealing, and they appealed for cert, and they got cert in the Supreme Court. And I argued it, and we won. What we won was a preliminary injunction, and ultimately, we settled the case. And they have their religion, and DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration, has to help them bring it in. They got proper licenses, and that's the end of the story. But it took a long time. So was that your first experience with the United States Supreme Court? No. I had another case that went to the Supreme Court that I did not argue. I was there in 1980. It's a case involving putting a beeper on the back of a car and using it as a search and seizure method. 
We want part of it. Ultimately, we settled that case, a criminal case involving cocaine. But I was there and helped prepare for it. But this one was the only one I ever argued. There were only eight people at the time, eight justices. It was unanimous. I'm never going back. That's a great record. I'm not changing. (laughs) And, you know, and it was hard. I mean, fortunately, I had plenty of money to do it from the client. And ultimately, the government had to pay everything back. But I had entire months to work on nothing but that case. I went to five big mood courts. And yeah, I was totally prepared for every question by the time I got there. Speaking of cases that took a long time, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about the Muhammadu Uz Salai matter. This is the topic of a movie that was just out in 2021 called The Mauritanian that starred Jodie Foster as you. And it relays Mohamedou's story from his arrest in 2001 and his detainment in Guantanamo Bay until I believe it was 2016. Is that right? That's correct. He was arrested for allegedly being a recruiter for the 9-11 attacks. I understand that you came to represent him in approximately 2005. Tell us how that came about. Well, NACDL, National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers that I was involved with, some military lawyers came to see us and said, we need civilian help on these cases. And we met, and at first, we had a big debate about it. And at first I said, you know, these rules are so cumbersome, we can't really do this ethically. We're not going to have any privilege uh, communications. This is not a real court. Maybe we shouldn't give it any accountability. It's not right. And we'll just be functioning in something that's totally against the criminal legal system of the U.S. And someone said, if we don't do it, they're going to just get really bad lawyers and push these cases through. And I said, you know, you're right. Let's just do them. Let's do them. Let's fight to make this as fair as we possibly can. And I wanted to do a a trial. I'm a trial lawyer, but there weren't any. And then out of the blue, I got an email from a lawyer in Paris named Emmanuel Altit. And we had talked together I taught some advocacy for people who were going to go before the International Criminal Court or the court in Yugoslavia, and he had also. And he said he had heard from a lawyer in Mauritania that the family was looking for this person. Could I find out if he was there? The movie describes this, trying to find out, and the government saying, you know, we can't confirm or deny. And we ultimately found him, and I said, great. I'll represent him. And that's how it started. What was your first move procedurally? What had been afforded to him up to that point after, it sounds like, four years in Guantanamo Bay? The Center for Constitutional Rights had started filing habeas cases as next friend of as many people as they could identify. And he had a habeas case that had been filed. He had also written to the court twice and said, you know, I'm here illegally, which the court, the D.C. District Court, deemed to be habeas 
requests. So there were three pending when I got into the case, but they weren't going anywhere because the government was not required to answer them. So they just sat there. And at the beginning, there was another lawyer who the Council for Constitutional Rights had recruited. Her name was Sylvia Royce. They had recruited her to represent him. She was willing to step aside because we had the family, but she spoke French. And we assumed that he spoke French or hoped that he did so we wouldn't have to get an interpreter. So she stayed on. Ultimately, she did quit. But she stayed on and we filed, Sylvia and I, and my associate, Teresa Duncan, who's now a death penalty learned counsel, but at that time was my associate, worked on this case from the beginning also. And the three of us decided to file a FOIA request, which I've often done in criminal cases because you get different stuff and you sometimes get things the government won't give you. And we got his medical records which later people couldn't get, but turned out to be important because we then had proof that his ribs had been broken. We had proof that they were putting him in positions that the doctor said he shouldn't be in because he had a previous back injury. So we were able to get a lot of information from those medical records. And we went into court and said, we want the records of his interrogations because we believe he was tortured. And the government said they're classified and you can't have them. And the judge said, I'm going to have to grant the government's motion for summary judgment because you can't get them. The next day, the FBI made public a inspector general report because the FBI had complained that members of the military were pretending to be FBI officers when they were torturing people. And the IG found that that was true. Wow. And we got that report about the same time. It had to be before the judge ruled because he said he was going to think about it over the weekend. It was Judge Robertson. And the Senate Armed Services Committee report came out, not the later one that everyone knows about, but an earlier one. And it had 13 pages about Muhammadu. Still things were redacted, but there was a lot about his torture. And I called the government's lawyer, a woman named Jean, who was a very nice woman. And I said, you know, your client has released this information that you said was classified. And she looked into it and called me back and said, I'm very embarrassed, but we're withdrawing our motion for summary judgment. So then we got more information that we ultimately used when the law changed in 2008 and the Supreme Court ruled on the Bomidian case which said that the government actually had to respond to these habeas cases. And then the government started responding, and then the case continued. If I'm correct, it was the 2009 habeas hearing that Judge Robertson agreed with you all and granted habeas, but then it had to be appealed to the D.C. Circuit Court. Is that correct? That is correct. The Obama administration, which said it wanted to close Guantanamo, appealed for almost every single habeas case that was won. And about 70% of them were being won at that time because the government really didn't have any evidence to hold most of these people. But they appealed, you know, was speaking out of both sides of their mouth, one would say. And we were fortunate that our case was not reversed, as many of them were. 
our case was remanded because the law had changed and it's complicated to explain, but it made it much more difficult for the prisoners to ever win. We're back in front of the D.C. court. Now Robertson has retired. We were in front of Judge Sullivan for a while. We bounced around judges. But nobody ever did anything. We filed motion after motion asking for circumstances, documents of other people who they said were going to be witnesses. One was Ramsey bin Al-Sheba. The movie talks about him. He's one of the ones indicted for the 9-11 now. But we never got anything from the government, and the judge just didn't rule. And several of the other judges didn't either. And I don't know why. I can only surmise that they didn't want their cases to go back to the D.C. Circuit and lose. So it just sat there until he was finally heard by the periodic review board that President Obama ordered an executive order. I think in 2011, it didn't get funded or didn't start operating until 2013. And Mohamedou didn't get his hearing until 2016. That is not a court. It's six intelligence agencies. You're not allowed to know which ones, but we assume it was the FBI, the CIA, the DIA, who knows how many others. You know, we have about 13 three-letter organizations in the U.S. handle classified evidence. And they ruled unanimously that he was not a significant threat to the U.S. or its allies. They were not supposed to look at the actual charges. They obviously did in many cases, but they said, there's just nothing here. And then later, it took a couple months to get their opinion. And then it took another couple of months to get him out. And then one more thing, he goes home to Mauritania. Government agrees. The government said we had to be there to provide support, but they wouldn't tell us exactly when he was leaving. So we had this like back and forth. We figured out when he was leaving. I was on a plane, got there the next day. The government initially said, you can't file any press release until our plane is out of Mauritanian airspace. And we said, you know what? We've done everything you've asked. We're not going to do that because he's on the ground. The Mauritanians are visiting with him, the U.S. ambassadors with him. We're going forward. It's all over the Arabic press. And they said, well, give me 15 minutes to tell people. And I said, you can have 15 minutes, but that's all you get. Get your plane out. And I got there the next day. And that scene in the movie at the end, which is a real scene of the real Mohamedou, that was the scene of when he first got there and all the people around him, including the U.S. ambassador was there ambassador to Mauritania. But he didn't get a passport for three years on instructions from the U.S. That was part of what I had read is, was his family in Germany? Well, his family, like his birth family and his nine brothers and sisters and his parents are dead, but all kinds of nieces and nephews, they're all in Mauritania, except for one brother who lives in Germany, is a German citizen now. He married an American lawyer who 
he met because she was a student studying Guantanamo. And she moved to Mauritania a year later. She got pregnant and then had a child and moved. Their idea was that when he got a passport, they would live in Mauritania part-time and Germany part-time. And of course, he went to school in Germany. He speaks fluent German. And that never happened because Germany wouldn't let him in. And then he and she divorced. And that's where that stands. This may be too general of a question, but throughout that experience, is there a lesson? Is there a moral of the story? Is there anything that you can share with us, your takeaway from that particular story? You know, the person who was supposed to prosecute that case, Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Couch, retired Marine, refused to prosecute. And the movie talks about that. And he refused because it was against the law and it was morally wrong to torture someone. And because he went to church and heard a preacher say, every human being has dignity. And there is a lesson there. The other lesson takeaway is from Muhammadu when he first got out, and I didn't know he was going to do this, saying, I forgive everyone. He said, it's my right. No one can take it away from me. You know, he was controlled for 19 years altogether. And he said, nobody can control me. Nobody can say, no, you can't forgive people. And he said, I've told Allah, he's very religious, that I'm going to be kind to everyone for the rest of my life. And I think that's a lesson. And a lesson that for lawyers is never give up. You know, a miracle can happen. And I don't mean a superstitious kind of miracle, but we had years with Muhammadu when nothing was happening. And Terry and I said, look, we'll always be here for you, but we don't know if you're ever going to get out of here. And I had had a similar experience years earlier with a woman named Precious Bedell. took 15 years to get her out, and the prosecutor helped. And there, too, at one point she said, I just have to serve my time. We're not getting anywhere. And I said, we're not but I'm not going to give up. And then judges shifted and things happened. And I think lawyers should always do all the work and know everything and file every motion and really do, do the work of defending someone, but also never give up if it all fails. I think all of us has been in situations where you do feel like there is not much more you can do. It's been a good fight. And you do sort of turn the page. And I know that there are a lot of times when that is perhaps the, I don't know about the only choice, but certainly, I guess, a reasonable choice. What does make you not give up? (laughs) And maybe it's because you've not given up and it's resolved itself in a good way. But I guess that's my question. I find myself from time to time, I do trial work. I'm a plaintiff's attorney. So I'm often challenged with a lot of different hurdles. And there are times when you feel like giving up. What makes you not give up? I don't know. I had a case 
years ago that I did on appeal that I could not, I mean, it was tried so badly, I couldn't win it. But I told him, I'll stick with this until we're out of courts. You know, we went to the Supreme Court. It didn't take it. We did a habeas. And I have a case now, the worst case of my whole career, Shukri Abubakar, who was the CEO of the Holy Land Foundation. And he's doing 65 years for providing charity Palestine. And that's really all he was charged with. He was charged with material support to terrorism, but not for doing anything except providing charity. And we've been through every court. We've been to the habeas and lawyers have done everything. But now a person has finally come forward and said, she'll make a documentary. And, you know, maybe the court of public opinion, I mean, maybe we'll finally get somewhere. We just want a clemency. We just want him out. You know, that's a case where, I mean, I'm never going to give up as long as there's something to do. I'll always stay in touch with him. But, you know, I don't know how we're going to ever get him out. I just don't know. But you got to hope that some president grants clemency or something else happens. So, you know, I think that you always have to do that. I mean, with plaintiff's work, I know because I know, you know, the lawyers in my office always did a lot of plaintiff's work. And you lose a case, you know, you can't win all of them and you don't get relief for someone. I think you work the case until there's nothing else you can do. And then there's nothing else you can do. But if something else comes along, you go back into it. During your representation of Mahamadou, you wrote an op-ed that was published in the New York Times. And it was called A Terrorist Lawyer and Proud of It. Right. I'm a terrorist lawyer. I'm proud of it. I got to know the circumstances. What compelled you to write this? Well, at that time, Cheney, among others, were saying these lawyers should not represent these people in Guantanamo. They shouldn't do it. It's terrible. They're acting in ways that lawyers shouldn't act, almost saying that we were becoming like our clients. And it infuriated me because nobody had ever said that when I represented someone who had raped a three-year-old child. Nobody said it when I represented a murder client or somebody who defrauded old ladies. And all of a sudden, we've become like our clients. And I was so angry that I sat down and wrote that. I knew somebody who worked in the editorial section of the International Herald Tribune, which is really where I was writing it for. After it came out, a friend called me and said, that's a great article, but it's really too bad that that's how they titled it. I said, that was my title. (laughs) I take full responsibility for that title. And it came out of the anger that I felt. And interestingly, that was one of the things that made Jodie Foster want to take this part was when she read that. I wonder, did you get pushback in the form of comments or phone calls or anything like that after writing that? I did. You know, I got some people who wrote to me. I got a threatening letter, but nothing really terrible. People called me who I didn't even know and wanted to know where I was and could we go to lunch. Do you think Guantanamo Bay will ever close? I thought at the beginning of President Biden's presidency that there was a chance it would close. He talked again about closing it, 
And now there's some serious effort, but I just don't think it's going to get done. Half the people there now have been cleared for release. And there needs to be someone in the State Department working on this. And now there is, finally. You know, it takes time. And all the rest of them who are, quote, forever prisoners need to leave. We don't have forever prisoners. Where do you find that in the U.S. legal system? People, we can't try them because we don't have enough evidence against them, but we think they're dangerous. That's not how this works. That's not how justice works. And for those who are facing trial, including my other client, Abrahim al-Nasri, those cases need to be resolved in ways that provide due process, though it's an issue about whether they're even entitled to due process. The whole court system is just a fabrication of something. There's nothing to do with justice. I read, so this is public, that the 9-11 guys, there are five of them, are in some kind of plea negotiations, but that they want to stay in Guantanamo. And I can understand why. If they're going to get life sentences, which most of them will, I think, they want to stay there. They have a community there of the five of them. They get to see each other. They get to pray together and eat together. And if they're sent to some supermax place, that'll all end. They'll be locked down for the rest of their lives in a cell and never have any human contact. That's American legal system. That's how our penitentiaries work for people who are considered, quote, terrorists. Yeah. You've handled these difficult cases for your entire career. How do you handle the pressure, the personal toll that this kind of work can take? You know, this work does take a personal toll. It's stressful. It takes too much time if you do it right, do it correctly, do everything you should. And I spent years working nonstop, raising a child by myself and also just working all the time. And finally, in about 2008, I said, I just can't do this anymore. I don't like staying up all night, night after night after night in a long trial. I finished you know, a month-long trial, and then it got retried in another month-long trial. That was the Holy Land case. And I just decided I didn't want to do it anymore. And so I understand people who don't do it. The stress of knowing someone is going to jail because you can't win a case or don't win a case or do something wrong is hard. It's just hard. And when I was reading about the torture of al-Nashri, I talked to our expert, Sandra Crosby, a doctor who handles torture cases, and I said, God, it's really hard reading this stuff. And she said, don't read it all at once. Read some, go to a park, don't think about it, because otherwise it will take you down. And all I can tell people is, you know, look at a tree, you know, talk to the trees. They're listening. We all know that they communicate with each other. Maybe they talk about us, maybe talk to them. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, go for a walk, do something with an animal, you know, take your dog for a walk, do something else. You cannot do this all the time. You just can't. It's too biggest hole. What did you do in 2008? Did you make a change? 
Well, there weren't really any many jury trials anymore, as you probably know. And I tried one after that. Every year I kept saying I wasn't going to take new cases. And then something came along that I liked and I did. But about three years ago, I said, I really mean it this time. I'm not taking any new cases. I'm going to finish the cases I have, except for Al Nashri, which I'll keep. And I'll consult if people want me to. And I moved to New York from New Mexico because I wanted to live in New York. I wanted to live somewhere where you can walk and you don't have to drive. And there's lots of things to do. You know, Albuquerque, you have to drive everywhere and there's not that much to do. And that time I meant it and I haven't. I haven't taken a single new case. I've consulted and I'm going to Europe on Wednesday and I'll work on the Nashri European cases and I've joined some boards and that's where I am. Well, that is a very difficult decision to make, I know, but then implementing it is even harder. Yes, it is. So congratulations for actually being able to follow through for the most part. For the most part. I mean, the word retired is frightening to me because I don't want to be retired. Somebody said you're repurposing. Maybe that's what I'm doing. Oh, I like that. I like that. But yeah, it's hard. I mean, you know, I've been a lawyer since 1978. That's a long time. I think about that myself. I've practiced for 25 years. And there's something about, there's a pull to do something different, change it up a little bit. I actually do try a lot of cases. And I really do understand the stress of that and how it can really take a lot out of you and your family. And if there was anything that I love and hate at the same time, it's the actual trial of a case, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think about there's got to be something different I can do, something, quote, better I can do. But I don't want to not use my skills. I don't want to look at 25 years and say, do I really not have any creativity in my mind about what else I can do? I mean, you know, there's certainly some things you're going to do, but making that transition away from something that has given you so much, I mean, pride is a word that I would use to describe a practice of law and personal fulfillment, even in the face of stress. It's a hard decision to make. And it sounds like, though, that you've really had the ability to take all of that together and decide to go forward? Well, I have, but it's hard. The thought of not being a lawyer is hard. And at some point, I'll decide that the El Nashri cases, I mean, they all have lawyers besides me because they're in Europe. And at some point, I'll just say I'm finished, but I'm not there yet. Well, Nancy, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I really have enjoyed our conversation and learned a lot and am just so thankful for your service and the work that you've done for the criminal justice system and really upholding such strong tenets of our Constitution, which unfortunately, based on the cases that you've described, sometimes gets lost a little bit. So thank you so much for that. Uh, You're welcome. You know, Muhammad Ali said a quote that I really think about a lot. It said something to this effect, and I think I've got it right. The rent you pay for your place here on earth is service to others. You know, whatever that is, in a broad sense, in a little sense, 
helping people cross the street, whatever it is. And I learned it from jujitsu also, because our sensei said, you learn this and you become a samurai and you're responsible for your community, whatever your community is. Yeah, it's that accountability and selflessness that I think we could all take a lesson in. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested. Our next episode drops on Thursday, so please subscribe now and hear every inspiring episode.